0: (laughs) We're glad that was uh, dramatized and that no marriages were, actual marriages were damaged in the filming of that skit. (laughs) Apparently I need to update my biography on the website because I am now the father of four grandchildren and uh, Blair is now married and no longer at home. So that would be bad news right now if Blair was at home. That would be (laughs) serious. So... uh, no, it's not your fault, that's uh, uh, just updating one's biography isn't one thinks about very often, so so thanks for the introduction, thanks for the invitation to be here, let me just ask Tandy to come up for just a minute, we're just going to share a little bit about our life together. Tandy and I uh, met at church in high school, so we are high school sweethearts, and um, the reason she loves me is because she never dated anyone else, and she has nothing, <laughs> nothing to compare me to, so she actually thinks I'm nice, and... Uh, now we're very grateful for the Lord introducing us uh, early in life, and uh, so we, we met in high school at church. We, uh, we began dating, and uh, I worked for Tandy's father, for he was one of my first bosses in uh, part-time work as a high schooler. and uh, we, we stand before you as uh, a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Uh, this past July, we celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary. Tandy is to be commended or 37 years of faithfulness. And uh, so we're, we're thrilled to have the opportunity, particularly in Jupiter, with uh, our, the, the demographics of our church are unusual in that most churches tend to have not very many young people, uh, a lot of middle-aged and or older people, and ours is sort of a reversed bell curve. We have a huge number of young couples in our church, most of whom did not come from Christian homes, the first-generation believers, uh, Christian marriages now raising children and, and trying to figure out what God said about that because they can't just lean on their parents' example. And even if you did have Christian parents, you'd still need the scripture and your parents' example. So we have a wonderful opportunity. I, I sort of would describe what we do at Grace Emanuel as proactively having the opportunity to offer instruction like we'll enjoy together this weekend. That's, probably, uh, that's, that's a big part of what I do. I would say, because some of you may be saying, what does a family ministries guy do? And so I would say, give vitamins, proactively give new spiritual nutrition on marriage and family on a regular basis. The other half of the ministry we do is is less public, more private, and that's the opportunity to to give medicine uh, one-on-one or two-on-two or one-on-two with couples who are having trouble, parents who have questions. So sometimes just sweet personal tutoring uh, sometimes just painful spiritual surgery, and sometimes just saying, "You know what i can 't unscramble the egg, uh, but I can give you some ketchup to make it taste better <laughs> so so uh, lots lots of opportunity to disciple and to counsel and to teach publicly and privately from house to house, literally uh, help helping marriages there so the lord uh, the Lord saved both of us when we were uh, literally children and then we met each other when we were barely adults, and uh, we married very young. Uh, our children have tended to marry young, and we couldn't really say to our kids, don't get married so young. These, these, these young marriages don't last, you know? I can't, I can't say that. So I tried this instead. Your mother and I were just unusually mature for our age. And, and then <laughs> they'd look at the wedding pictures and go, uh, not so much, Dad. <laughs> were you even shaving when you got married? And so, uh, so we, we represent just um, I was saying last night to a small group that helped plan this weekend, some of my children are tempted to think that they're behind because they're teenagers and they don't know who they're going to marry yet. And we've had to say we're we're the anomaly. You're normal to be 19 and not who you're gonna know who you're gonna marry. That that's way more typical. So, so the Lord, I would just say, in His journey with us, um, been unusually patient um, when we were not spiritually discerning. He He guided us and protected us. He he think of it this way he just brought all the right people into our lives to bring us truth from God's word at just the right times when we were open to it and if you said what what's the easiest way to describe thirty seven years of marriage that's that's what it would be so for you men I would say if i if there's anything that i've i learned in thirty seven years of marriage it's it's this um that spiritual neutrality, when, when we go spiritually neutral, that that is actually painful for our wives. And uh, And as I, as I've seen Tandy either thrive or struggle based on my openness and my willingness to just initiate spiritual contact. that uh, there were plenty of times when I thought, well, I know I could be doing more, but at least I'm not hurting anyone. I came from a loud and volatile house, and I don't tend to be loud or volatile. I'm capable, but not, it's, not my, it's not my modus operandi, and, and, and learn. So knowing I could do more, but, but comforting myself falsely that I wasn't causing any harm, if there's anything I've learned from, from Tandy patiently waiting for me to lead at times, it was that it, that it does cause pain, that, that spiritual nothingness is not neutral. Uh, That spiritual nothingness for for a wife leaves her, as she described to me, I feel like a fish flopping on the deck. There's no water to swim in, and I'm made to respond to you and and made to, to thrive, not under your perfection, but under your leadership, and particularly making spiritual contact. So I would say the surprise for, I think, both of us was that while we were dating, talking about the Lord was natural and easy. I didn't have any trouble initiating a conversation. Let me tell you what I read in the Bible this morning. Let me tell you what I thought about that sermon. Or Sometimes I even had to say to her, you know, I haven't had a quiet time for two weeks and you probably shouldn't even be with me. And uh, This is when we're dating in high school and stuff. And she would say, you know, even when you said that to me, it was like, oh, that's why you're such a grump. Or, <laughs> you know, it. It. you made sense to me. And, and so just the... Men, the habit of swinging open the door of your heart and inviting your spouse into, uh, into your life, your inner life, is, uh, is, is critical to a, a woman's happiness in marriage because that's where God made her to be. And I remember I've had to say to Tandy a few times, why, why do you crave to be in here so much? It's a mess in there. I don't even want to go in there. Why do you want to go in there? And she'd say, because I, I'm made to be your helper. And I can't help a man that I don't know. And so even if what you have to tell me isn't, isn't a great review or a great story, uh, I, I know how to come along and, and help you. And, and so if I thought I was going to get run over by a car tonight or not get to be here tomorrow, men, if I had that one opportunity to deliver that, I would just say, look, if you've consoled yourself that thinking a lack of spiritual contact initiated by you with your wife was causing no harm, uh, I discovered as Tandy just gently and sweetly shared her heart over the years that, that it does cause harm. And in the case of our marriage, the way Tandy interpreted over time any lack of initiative on my part spiritually, she would interpret that as, um, she said to me once, I thought there must be something wrong with me. Because I, she said, I, you know, I went to nursing school, you did biblical training. She said, I, I thought that I must be an unstimulating spiritual partner because you meet with men at the church, and you have stimulating conversations with your fellow staff members, but when it when it came to me, the, the an open excitedness to share your inner life was uh, just what. I'm not talking about delivering a sermon. As a matter of fact, she said to me once, "Do you think, that, do you think that I need you to come down from Mount Sinai and deliver, you know, the oracles of God?" She said, "Look, I went to nursing school. You went to Bible school. If." If you wanted to set up a lectern in the living room and teach me, I'm not too proud to learn. I'd sit and take notes. But, quote, I've given up any hope of that. <laughs> she said, really, all, all I'm, I'm just asking for koinonia, fellowship with you. I don't need you to prepare another Bible study for me. I just want to hear what's going on. So, so men, any paragraph from you that begins with, let me tell you what I've been thinking. And just tell your wife what you've been thinking about the gospel, about your sin, about your kids, about your life, about your fears, your grandkids, your job. Your, uh, and just if you could just cultivate the habit of, of initiating, let me tell you, let me just tell you what I've been thinking. You know? And that's, uh, Tantia said to me many times, I could, I, I could live in a shack in the middle of nowhere if I could just have you. Okay? If I have the Lord and I have you. And, uh, and she had to learn at times to live with the Lord and without me. Right, which I say to my shame, but if you can learn from my mistakes and avoid them and somehow demystify the process, because for many of us, it's what does it mean to lead your wife? Well, there's a good starting point. You could start by just initiating spiritual contact by saying, hey, let me tell you what I've been thinking. Let me tell you what I read this morning. It doesn't have to be original, man. Underline your favorite sentence in the Bible you read that day or a book you're reading and just deliver. That, that would go a long way towards understanding leading so thanks again for being patient i am i am not now the model or ex- exemplar perfect of anything but that's what we've struggled to fight and maintain and and um that just tells you a little bit about us and i hope we'll just magnify the grace of god in our lives and because when you don't know someone and they come from far away and they speak and someone introduces them and they said they write a book then you I was telling George, I, the same thing happens to me when I go to a conference. I automatically take that person and put them in a different category. And, uh, and I just Don't. wanna, yeah, we are, Don't. we are. The funny thing about being a pastor is that while I have been called to be an under shepherd under the one true shepherd, I am also simultaneously a sheep. And, and your pastor George is your shepherd, but he's still a sheep. So God asks sheep to stand up on their hind legs <laughs> with a crook and a Bible And go, bah. (laughs) But actually, the sheep has no message of his own. He just says, hear ye, hear ye, thus says the Lord. And that's the great privilege of of being an under-shepherd. So uh, can you think of anything else that might help them understand us? Five children, four grandchildren now. We got that record straight. Two at home. Um, We've been involved in elder care for the last uh, decade of our life. We cared for my parents. Uh, for three years, who lived near us before my father, before he passed away. Uh, then my brother took over the care of my mom, who, who lingered a few more years after my father. Tandy's father, with Alzheimer's, moved in with us when we moved to Jupiter in 2011, and we had the, the complicated privilege of caring for him for six and a half years in our home. And uh, this, just a few weeks, will be two years, one week, it'll be two years that he's he's was gone. He he did not know the Lord when he entered our home, and we uh, had the gospel the opportunity to share the gospel with him every day for six and a half years. He was kind of a captive audience, and and so we we don't and we have no confidence that he's in heaven, but we do have reason to hope that he's in heaven. So, Tandy's mother lives uh, two doors from us, and uh, we're involved in her care, but she has care in her home, and so that's been uh, raising children and. You know they call you kind of the sandwich generation, where you're finishing raising your family and caring for parents. But that's that's what family's for. So uh, we we're certainly hoping that our children have noticed that we cared. For them. <laughs> one of one of my children said early in the process of taking care of her dad. She came up to me on a Sunday morning and put her hand on the small of my back. She was just a young girl then, and she said, "Daddy, when you are old, I will take care of you like you are taking care of my grandfather." Well, thank you, sweetie. But you, you cannot have a dog. Because <laughs> we inherited her dad with the the world's oldest and ugliest chihuahua named Brute. <laughs> and, uh, and Tandy at times would say, you, you know, you need to be a little kinder to the dog. I said, God's word commands me to love your father. He says nothing about his dog. <laughs> so, so I'm going to be cared for in my old age, but not if I have a dog. So, we want to have a dog. Yeah. So anyway, that's the best way I know to kind of give you a snapshot of who we are, what we've learned, and uh, what we're still learning. And so uh, let's... I am the worst sinner in the family. I have more opportunity because I'm home more than he is. So we'll get that straight on the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we arm wrestle for who is the worst sinner in the family. One night when I was putting one of the children to bed, uh, they went through this stage where they asked me every night for weeks, Daddy, do you think I'm a Christian? which is a very dangerous question. Uh, so I evade the question by answering in the third person, well, sweetie, the Bible says a Christian is someone who God has opened one of their eyes to see that, uh, to see that they are a great sinner. And my daughter said, she so said, oh, Daddy, I've, I've always believed I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm the worst sinner in our whole family. And I said, no, I'm not. No, you're not, sweetie. You're mother. I I am. <laughs> And she said, no, Daddy, you're not that. I said, no, I've been sinning long. I, trust me, I have like a PhD in sin, and you don't, you're just beginning. And, uh, and then the, the, the way to answer the child, the other one, so not only have you had your eyes open to see that you're a great sinner, but when God's grace opens someone's eyes to see that Jesus is a great Savior, then uh, that's what a believer is. And uh, she said, well, as best I know what it means to believe, that is what I believe. And I said, sweetie, God never sent anyone to hell." who was trusting in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Because the danger of that moment is, I don't want my children's assurance to rest on my words. Does that make sense? If I said, oh, sweetie, don't you remember you prayed when you were three? And that, that can't be what their assurance rests on. And nor do I want to pour cold water on any great thing the Lord is doing in their little heart. So it was an older man who said, just answer them in the third person. Say, this is what the Bible said.'" So this worked perfectly for four of my five children. My fifth child is very astute. And I gave her the same speech. God opens your eye to see you're a sinner, but, that Jesus is a sufficient savior, and went through the whole deal. And she looked at me, she says, You didn't answer my question. <laughs> what I said was, Do you think I'm a Christian? <laughs> I was like, Whoa, I was not prepared for this. So I still evaded her. She said, You and she said, You're not answering my question. I said, i it, it doesn't matter what I think. What it, all that matters is what God thinks. So parenting's complicated. Taking care of aging parents is complicated. Marriage is complicated. As a friend of mine says, life is hard. Get a helmet. <laughs> so life is complicated, and we're going to look to God's word for some clarity. So I understand that there's a three-year cycle for this annual conference. I think it's a brilliant idea to hold a conference in Ontario, in mid-January, and invite people from South Florida to do it. I think this is genius. Uh, as I understand where you are in the flow is that last last conference you, you focused on marriage and, uh, and, and, and that the, this year is to be a little broader than just marriage, it's marriage and family life. So the plan tonight is for us to take uh, the first of two lessons to look at just some things that God has to say about communication, You can apply that to marriage and or parenting and and anywhere else. This is not entirely focused by any means on, this is just biblical righteous communication. We'll be looking a little bit at Ephesians and we'll be surveying what Solomon had to say, particularly in the book of Proverbs about wise or harmful speech. Tomorrow we'll take up part two on communication, which is going to be more particular to conflict resolution, uh, forgiveness. What does it mean to overlook a sin? When do I overlook a sin and when do I confront a sin? Uh, what, what forgiveness is and is not? That's what we'll do tomorrow morning, first session. Then the other two sessions Saturday will be uh, part one and part two about a parent's priorities. Uh, what are a child's priorities in their relationship with their parents? And you'll say, well, there are no children here. Yes, but when we get to overhear what God tells children to do, we're learning our marching orders. That's what the Lord expects. Well, if that's what the Lord wants a child to do, then I have a better understanding of what I need to be leading and training that child to do. This would be helpful whether you're parents or grandparents. In some ways, when it comes to honoring, which is a lifelong relationship we have, even as adult children with our parents, honoring goes on throughout. I don't obey my parents all my life, but I do honor them all my life. And we'll even talk a little bit about what it looks like to honor parents as an adult child. Uh, and then we'll look at uh, a, second, uh, a second parenting uh, time together, and that'll be more focused on what are our priorities. So two on communication, two on parenting, and then Lord willing, if you're a regular part of the church, and we we'll are here together Sunday morning, we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 128 on uh, the home that God blesses and the priority God places. You want to see blessing in your marriage, your vocation, and your family life, then the number one prerequisite is to fear God that God-fearing men are blessed with happy wives, children, and jobs. And uh, we'll look together and try to clarify what does it mean to fear God. I think that's a phrase that, that is a little bit lost and a little bit confusing. So that's, that's the plan for Sunday morning. So that just kind of gives you an overview of what we'd like to try to do. So if you have a handout there, if you want to turn to that first session, Biblical Communication in Marriage... And simultaneously be opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I hope that what the handout will do is allow you to have the opportunity to go back and look more carefully at some of these passages. Because we're sweeping through a number of Proverbs in just a moment after we get out of Ephesians, I just went ahead and printed the actual text there for you so that you aren't constantly flipping through Proverbs. but. Uh, I hope this will be helpful to you as we as we look at this issue of of speech and communication. Just as we open Ephesians 4, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's grace. Father, our desire is for you to be put on display today and this weekend and tomorrow, that you would get yourself glory as your children, your sheep who love your voice, look into your word. Lord, we need we need we need consolation where we're hurting. We need We need uh, confrontation and conviction where we're lax. But maybe most of all, Lord, we get lost in the weeds so often. Lord, would you take your word and provide not only comfort and conviction, but would you provide clarity for us? Uh, uh, Demystify our own hearts to us so that we're no longer a mystery to ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 4... Paul is not talking about marriage. That will come in Ephesians chapter 5, but in Ephesians chapter 4, he's contrasting, reminding the church in Ephesus, in regards to the way you used to live, put that aside and take that off like you would a a filthy garment. Put that away from you and put on the new self. There's one step in between that's often overlooked. He says, put off the old self, have your mind renewed, and then put on the new self. And it's after that sort of three-part instruction, which, by the way, sets Christianity apart from mere behavioral modification. If all the Bible said was put off the old things you used to do, put on the new, well, that could just be behavioral, external change, window dressing, self-reformation. We know people without Christ who make major life changes. They, they, they put off habits and they start new ones. But what the Scripture is calling for is put off have your mind changed, your heart and your mind renewed. There's only one tool to do that, the scriptures. And then put on the new self. And so in the wake of that, he starts giving some examples. For instance, when is a thief not a thief? A thief is not a thief, not when he stops stealing, but when he stops stealing, works hard with his hands, and has something to do to, to share with others. So a thief has his mind and thinking changed, not just his behavior and In the context of that, Paul has some things to say about communication. One of them in verse 25. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, after this call to lay aside, be renewed and put on. Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Later in tonight's talk, we'll talk about the danger of deceptive speech. But here Paul says this. Remember, you need to lay aside all forms of deceit. Remember, falsehood has sort of a soft side and a hard side. Falsehood could just be a straight-up lie, saying the opposite of what is true. But the soft side of falsehood is at times not speaking when you should and by silence allowing an impression to be created that is not in touch with reality. So anything you do, the raising of an eyebrow, a tone of voice, a comment that either tries to put you in a better light than is real or put someone else in a worse light than is actually true. That All forms of deception are unacceptable for a Christian or a part of the old life and have to be laid aside. And so for us to talk about communication in marriage, we have to talk about the importance of honesty and integrity in speech. God values it. No matter how hard you try, if you are married to someone who is deceptive, no matter how hard you try to have a stable relationship with them, you will never have a stable relationship where someone through deception is jackhammering the foundation on a regular basis. doesn't mean you can't have any relationship. You can serve them and love them and speak to them, confront them, expose the the, the wrongdoing of deception, but that close relationship you're longing for, you can't have that until the Lord would change the heart of a deceiver. And so you may have to say, Lord, what I'd like to have is a safe relationship where I'm sure I'll always be given integrity. In reality, what you'll have to say is, Lord, that's not what we have right now. So how do I best love and serve my spouse if they lack that kind of integrity? And you may, even, you may even need pastoral help to know, how would I go about addressing this? And how could I do this in an honorable way? Much could be said about that, but you can see that the apostle lays, the Bible lays a premium on honest speech. So minimizing your sin can be a form of falsehood. Exaggerating your virtues can be a form of falsehood. So, and all of us have hearts that <laughs> our conscience points a finger at us when we're creating impressions with our words that are not reality. So lay aside falsehood. Quoting from the Old Testament, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. The motivation and the rationale for why you can't be deceptive and involved in falsehood is because of our attachment to one another, and falsehood rips at that, that unity. Uh, my children have often asked, what are the greatest hurts? Not often. When we're in discussions, we'll, we'll say, what, what are some of the greatest hurts? And, and at times, you know, they want to hear stories, and, and I would just say, you know, the, the greatest hurts of my life have all been attached to someone lying to me or about me. Those are some of the most painful things in life, and... So you can hear the apostle under the inspiration of the spirit reminding us because we belong to one another, falsehood just cannot be. And that's an interesting motivation, an interesting reason that the Lord would call us to integrity of speech. Verses 26 through 32 emphasize not communicating honestly, but you see in your handout there, communicating graciously. Let's just read this passage together. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So the concept here of keeping short accounts, the devil gets an opportunity when you go to bed with uh, sinful anger in your heart. We've described it with our children. Bitterness is crockpot anger, the anger that has had time to sit and season. Uh, You know how some dishes taste better the day after you make them because all the flavors have melded together. Bitterness in a negative way is anger that's had time to season and blend, and and in a wicked way becomes more delicious than it was yesterday. And that gives Satan an opportunity in the body of Christ. It gives Satan an opportunity in any relationship, and in the in the particular closeness of marriage, sets us up for, for danger here. So there's obviously a righteous kind of anger that the Lord is actually commending here. Be angry. If you want to figure out what is it, how can I be righteously angry? Think about this. When you're offended and angry, ask yourself this simple question. Is God offended by what just happened? And if you're offended by the same things God's offended by, then you may have a shot at righteous anger. I I read this verse and continually think, Lord, I don't think I've ever obeyed this verse. I don't know that I've ever been angry without very quickly polluting it with sin. Because even when I get offended by the things that offend God, before I know it, for a moment, maybe I get in, I'm sharing the offense of God. You hear somebody take the Lord's name in vain. You hear someone distorting uh, on the television, a a false teacher distorting the gospel and bilking widows for their money. I get mad about that stuff. But boy, I'll tell you what, it isn't very long before my anger gets infected with self-righteousness and I start thinking before I know it, not only am I offended by what you do, but I don't do that, and I'm better than you. And so this is, this is a fine line, but obviously the Lord believes it's possible. Be angry about the things that make me angry, yet do not sin. Further down in verse 29, we, you see we're to avoid unwholesome kind of communication. Look at 29. Let no unwholesome, that's the word for putrid, rotting, <coughs> putrefying, decaying. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That's what I should lay aside. Once my mind is renewed, what what should be the new kind of speech that comes from my mouth? Only such a word as is good for edification. The word edification means to build up. It's the opposite of this putrefying, rotting words, unhealthy words. This is words that that would edify, that would build up, robust words that would be filled with truth and nutritious, as it were. Only such a word is as good for edification according to the need of the moment. Boy, sometimes you know the right thing to say, but is this the time to say it? That's why Solomon would say about wise speech that an apt answer is, is such joy, joy to a discouraged heart. The right word spoken at the right time, he says, like apples of gold in settings of silver. That's how rare and valuable it is. This is what the Lord is saying. Put aside putrid speech. Use your tongue as a vessel to build others up, but be sure you say the right thing at the right time. Sometimes timing is the issue. So look at the rest of verse 29. According to the need of the moment, what's the ultimate purpose of your speech? So that it will give grace to those who hear. Immediately followed by verse 30, don't grieve the Spirit of God. That means within this context... One of the things that grieves God's spirit is this very thing, putrefying speech. And you know, the reality is, it's just so much more tempting in the privacy of your home. Which means a lot of times, the reason we're keeping our speech as it is for fear that someone else might hear us means I'm not being motivated by the fear of God because God is in your house when no one else is there. And if fear of God were motivating you, all of a sudden you realize, boy, sometimes the reason I curb my tongue is not for the noblest reason. Why did God make your tongue? To give grace to those who hear the words you speak. I had a friend of mine who said one time, before I speak, sometimes I say to myself, quote, is what I'm about to say an improvement on the silence? I thought, well, that would save a lot of wasted words, wouldn't it? Is what I'm about to say an improvement on the silence? Let's just finish reading the chapter. Do not grieve the spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, that's that crockpot anger, anger that lasted more than a day. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, those are, that's more the volcanic explosion of anger. Those are So bitterness is long-term anger. Uh, wrath and anger, while very related, they're both uh, related to one another. They both refer to flash anger. So Sustained anger and flesh and flashy anger, let it all, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamor are the words that come from the anger, loud heated exchanges, let all clamor and slander, slander is the biblical word for saying someone, something about someone that's not true. In the context of marriage, primarily Paul is thinking here of the church, but in the context of marriage, slander can come from those times where you exaggerate your spouse's fault. You always, you never, it's constant. Those are all words that would fall under this term of slander. Is it really true, always? Never? Constant? That's, That's slander. So he begins with the heart. In the heart is there bitterness, long-term anger. Then he continues in the heart. Is there anger? Is there wrath? That's the flashes, volcanic anger. Then he moves to the speech. Is there clamor and slander? So what is he saying about all of this? What's the command? Let it be put away from you. And then just when you think he's done, he adds this. Along with, and he goes back to another heart attitude all malice. Malice, maliciousness, just mean-spirited. It's as close to the word hatred as you're going to get in the New Testament. Just just hatefulness. Now, you'd you'd think that he's talking to unbelievers. Who is this letter written to? Christians, a church, in a cosmopolitan city, surrounded by idolatry and sensuality, Uh, a, a, a largely mature church, the church in Ephesus, We get to the book of Revelation, we learn the church in Ephesus, though they would lose their first love, did very well. So this is the church where Paul left behind and left Timothy there to be his apostolic delegate and continue to pastor the church. Christians still need to hear these words. And so the the two big imperatives in in Ephesians 4 here are are the honesty of communication and then I just took all that other and just categorized it under gracious communication. So if you're like me, you're already saying, ouch, and I need help. And that's what the rest of this handout is intended to do. So what I'd like to do now is just use the book of Proverbs as an overview of biblical speech. We're going to look at at five different things. Righteous speech, uh, the the fruit of it, the blessings that come from righteous speech. Then we'll look at some distortions in communication. For some of you, the issue is non-communication. No one would ever accuse you of talking too much or yelling. You just don't talk at all, and that's not an option for a Christian. That's not. That's not. Oh, I'm just shy. No, well, you might be, but non-communication would ultimately be. It's just selfish because communications work, or you might be fearful. Communications risky. You run the risk of being misunderstood. You run the risk of <laughs> men. If we speak and create a an impress an. Uh, an idea, an initiative, and then we don't follow through on it? Uh, well, now we've created, my speech has created accountability that I'd rather not have. So, some of you, the sin will be non communication. Some of you, the sin will be over communication, which is a polite way of saying you talk too much and don't listen enough. So, what's the sweetness of righteous speech? What's the danger of non communication? The danger of over communication? And then, just, just two more after that, we'll look at briefly. Dishonesty, which we've already touched on, the danger of dishonesty in speech. And then we'll talk for a moment, what does Proverbs have to say about harsh speech? Sarcasm and anger that Paul touched on here in this passage. So uh, I won't read all of these verses to you, but you can look at this handout later. But let's look at some of these Proverbs where wise King Solomon tells us about the blessings of righteous speech. Paul said it this way, build other people up. Let your words be that which provides grace. And you you see a a similar sentiment coming from Solomon. Proverbs 10, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. From the mouth of the righteous flows wisdom. Uh, skip, Skip Proverbs 10 and look at Proverbs 15 there. A man has joy in an apt answer. How delightful is a timely word. Pleasant words are pure. Skip down to Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. I don't know who it was that came up with the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But whoever they were, they were a liar. Sticks and stones will break my bones, and words will break my spirit, not will never harm me. As a matter of fact, it will be greater harm. Your bone will heal quicker. Your bone will heal heal quicker from some trauma than your heart will from some words, to be sure. And so, this is a far more trustworthy proverb from the Lord: "Death and life are in the power of the tongue." And uh, you want to be a life giver when it comes to using your words. Proverbs 25: Like apples of gold in settings of silver, is a word spoken in right circumstances. So let's uh, turn to the next page in your handout. That's the blessing of, of righteous speech. That's, that's your goal. That's who you want to be. And the next four categories are some of the enemies we're going to have to combat. If we're going to build other people up, provide them with grace. If your mouth is going to be a fountain that gives life. If your mouth is going to become this uh, source of an apt word that brings joy to others. Then here's some of the things we'll have to combat. Uh, the next one the, the, in the list, the sin of non-communication. Proverbs 18.1, I've printed there for you. This is an important verse. Proverbs 18.1, Solomon says this: He who separates himself seeks his own desire. That means I, I may not, you may not be able to know what it is in someone else's life, but if someone lives as an island and is regularly separating themselves, isolating themselves. Living anonymously, living independent, not interdependently, but independently. We know this much from the Word of God. We can say this. Some desire in their heart is driving that. They seek their own desire. may not know what that desire is, but I know something's motivating them beyond, I'm I'm not as talkative as you, Todd, or I would be horrified to speak in public. All those personality traits made by God may be true. But here's God's MRI of the heart that likes to isolate. He who separates himself relationally seeks his own desire and look at God's assessment of that in the second half of the verse. He quarrels, by, by separating himself, he quarrels against all sound wisdom. That word for quarrel is, is used to describe animals uh, like, a, like a lion bearing its teeth. He, he bears his teeth Against all sound wisdom, this is not a mild. Hey, you're not listening to wisdom. This is a, a determined. Ugh. You are arguing with basic wisdom. If you live without a relation, without relationships, and so this is important for those of you who fall into the category of my temptation is not over speaking or harsh speech. My temptation is just to withdraw and not communicate. Then I just want you to understand the Bible considers that dangerous and unhealthy. And you would do well to ask the Lord, would you please show me what those desires are that make me... It may be as simple as self-protection. I've been hurt so many times that I just don't want to engage. And that's just really not an option for a believer. Why, why would I say that? Well, if you think about... We could go to a lot of passages, but if you just think about all those little phrases in the New Testament, one another, we call them the one another's. And I've listed some of them there for you. Build up one another. Admonish one another, be truthful with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, confess your sins to one another, greet one another, comfort one another, do not bite and devour one another, do not lie to each other. All of those one another's involve speech. No, there. I could bring you a meal, I could bring you flowers... You know, if you were discouraged, that might be a way to encourage one another. It isn't always speech, but primarily, how am I going to encourage you, walk up to you and just kind of go, hmm, I need to say something. It doesn't need to be original. It doesn't need to be any more profound than, than a verse of Scripture. But do but you see, you could never fulfill all these things that are just a New Testament expectation. You want to know what normal body life looks like in the, in, the, in the church? It involves this kind of thing. It means you got to know some people, not everybody. Some people well enough to know. You'd have to know somebody relatively closely to know how to encourage them in any specific way. And so, so there's this, for some of you, the danger you'll want to go to, go to work on in your life is, is withdrawing and just not communicating. So these, these commands you know, imply meaningful relationships. So I listed some other passages there that help you kind of flesh this out. Paul says of the church in Rome, in chapter 15, in his letter, he says, you yourselves, this is what I know and I'm convinced of this, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. The word admonish, you see, I put there in your notes, it literally just means take truth and place it into someone's mind. He says, and I know that you're able, and we tend to think, oh, that's thats the pastor's job. He—and—and And that is a part of a pastor's job, to place truth and proclaim it into your minds. But Paul's just talking about, Member to member life. I know that you're capable of doing this. Placing truth in each other's minds. You have to use words to do that. First Thessalonians five fourteen says we should admonish the unruly. We should encourage the faint-hearted. You're going to do that with words. Second Thessalonians three. Admonish someone as a brother. Place truth in the mind. So if you're a non talker, you're going to have to work on talking more and just fill your content with the things of God. Letter C in your outline is a different sin the sin not of non communication, but over communication. You can probably guess that of the two of these, this is going to be the one that's harder for me. I am verbose, I am loquacious, I talk for a living. And so the proverb says, "Where there are many words, transgression is what." Do you know the verse? It's unavoidable. And so the idea is not merely to multiply your words, uh, but but you can be guilty of overcommunication, particularly if you're the one always talking, and not ready to listen. And for some of you, that'll be the issue in your marital communication. Look at what Solomon says about listening, and talking. The wise of heart will receive commands but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Where there are many words I just quoted, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. So it's not just talk, it's listen. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools, blah, 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 proclaims his folly. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips, he will come to ruin. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Even a fool, when he is silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. Just a few more on the next page. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in what? Revealing his own mind. Let me tell you what I think about that. If you're an under-communicator, the answer to, to being a careful communicator is not to, not to blab out your own opinions, but to speak truth within the body of Christ with others. So you don't want to reveal your mind, but please reveal the mind of God to me wherever you know what the mind of God is. Proverbs 18, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. You start. You ever heard somebody talking and you're already preparing your next sentence and they haven't even finished yet? Said, that's, that's an unloving attitude and, and it's a sign of pride and we must be careful. Listen fully before you answer. Proverbs 21, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. Turn that one on its head. He who does not guard his mouth and his tongue throws his soul into all kinds of trouble. Aren't some of the most shameful, remorseful moments of your life that moment uses, if I could just take those words back. So he's, he's warning us on the front end, guard your soul, protect your soul from that shame and that grief by guarding your lips. Another obstacle to biblical communication is this dishonest speech that we've already touched on in Ephesians. Just a few more words about that. I categorized some Proverbs where you're being deceptive about yourself, uh, trying to protect your own reputation. This Proverb twenty-eight thirteen. this is the first verse of Scripture I memorized My mother, after she became a believer, began teaching me the Bible every morning before I got on the school bus in our double-wide trailer in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I thought we were rich because we had one of only three double-wides in the whole neighborhood. And as you know, wealth is a relative term. And in that double-wide trailer, the Lord, that's where I came to know Christ and that's where my first discipleship happened at the knee of my mother. This may not be the first verse she ever had me memorize. It'd be an odd place to start. But it's the first one I remember, and it became important because I grew up in a home full of habitual lying, and before I came to Christ, I was, even at a young age, I was already a habitual liar, and, and it would be something that the Lord would continue to convict about. So how interesting and how profitable for my life has been this first verse I remember. He who covers his sin will not prosper. this is as vivid to me as anything mommy what does prosper mean will not do well won't thrive he who covers his sin will not prosper but he who confesses with his mouth to those who, who need to be confessed to and forsakes it will find the one thing you're sure you won't find why are you motivated to cover your sin because if anybody knew they would never love me The cringing fear in all of us. If anybody really knew what I was like, you would reject me. And this verse says you'll find not rejection, but compassion. Now remember, this is a proverb, not a promise. In human relationships, I cannot promise you that every time you confess your sin to someone that you will be met with compassion. But from other places in God's word, I can tell you on the authority of God's word, if you uncover your sin before God, you will find compassion. When you confess it and forsake it, you'll find compassion 150% of the time. David would say, after his sin was forgiven of, of adultery and arranging for murder, he would say in Psalm 32, how blessed, how happy is the man whose sin is covered. By who? You weren't blessed, David, when you covered your sin. He says, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. When it's covered by God. How blessed is he to whom the Lord does not impute his iniquity anymore. So, precious verse to me. Deception, deceiving others about myself would be an early lesson I would have to learn. Own your sin, confess your sin, and I found compassion with God. You'll see I've listed some other verse about deception about others where you're lying Not to cover your own sin, but lying about others. Proverbs 10, he who conceals hatred has lying lips. He who spreads slander is a fool. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. One author I read defined gossip in this way. He said, gossip is confessing someone else's sin to someone else. Repenting is confessing your sin to God. Gossip is confessing someone else's sin to someone besides God. Makes it sound even uglier, doesn't it? Uh, Not my job to confess your sin to others. So dishonest speech. And finally, letter E on the next page, the sin of harsh speech. Again, we're expanding on what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians about gracious speech and, and anger and wrath. And so look what, look what Solomon and some New Testament writers has to say about angry speech. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but exact opposite, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Probably at some point in your life, you have been the sword bearer who used your tongue like a weapon and, and thrust it into the heart of others. No doubt all of us would say we've been the recipient at some point in our life of someone else's words jabbing into our heart like the thrusts of a sword. What we want to be about, what the gospel calls us to be, what Christ transforms us to be capable of, is just the opposite. Instead of killing people with the thrust of a sword, to heal people with our tongues. We often said to the kids, you know, growing up when they were little, I'd said when they would use their tongue wrongly, I'd say, that's not what God made your tongue for. Your tongue wasn't made to do what you're doing right now. And I'm not saying they mastered it, I'm just saying they heard it. And of course, there are times when I was the example, I, I was the one doing the, the, uh, the sword bearing and, and uh, having to seek their forgiveness on a frequent basis. Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath but harsh words just stir up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools sprouts folly. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it, in the tongue, crushes the spirit. The heart of the righteous ponders, thinks before it speaks, ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. He who restrains his words has knowledge, And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And then from the New Testament, Galatians 4, look at the second half of that passage. If you bite and devour one another with your words. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by each other. And from the Apostle James, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. No one can tame the tongue, James goes on to write. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father and with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Collected wisdom from the scripture to remind us why God made your tongue. As we close and we'll take a break, would you just turn to Isaiah chapter 50 for a moment? I just would want to put our majestic Savior's glorious righteousness in his speech on display. Isaiah chapter 50 is one of four sections in Isaiah that we've come to call the servant songs. Not really because they were ever sung, but because in amongst Isaiah's uh, anthology of his prophecies, these are just some places where the language just rises to such... <laughs> pristine, poetic beauty that that they almost begin to feel more like lyrics to a song. And and Isaiah 50 is one of those passages. Begin reading with me in verse 4. Speaking 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah speaks in first person as if he were Christ. So hear what the Spirit of God inspires Isaiah to say about the ministry of Jesus. It's as if you're hearing Jesus speak through Isaiah 700 years before his incarnation, and this is what Jesus says. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. Literally, the tongue of a trained one. The, think of it the tongue of a student, but more like the tongue of a graduate. The Lord God has given me a tongue that has been trained. And, and what did you do with that tongue, Jesus? He goes on to say, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. We just heard Solomon say that, that, that good words give life. They're like a fountain of life. Jesus is, is the, the tongue par excellence. He is the speaker par excellence. He is the supreme unrivaled one when it came to speech. And he says, the Lord God gave me a trained tongue. To do what? To know how to take weary people and sustain them with a word. Haven't you been the recipient? This prophecy has been fulfilled. Haven't you come to the word of God discouraged and weary either by someone sinning against you or discouraged and wearied by your own sin? Has not Christ sustained you when you were weary with a word? This is who we want to be. Christians, we're little Christs. We are... We are to bear as much resemblance this side of heaven to him as possible to do what he did, to think like he thought, to say the kinds of things he would say. And if Jesus knew how to sustain weary people with a word, then that's what I want to use my tongue for. That's what a tongue was made for. But you better brace yourself if you want the same ministry of Jesus in, in sustaining weary people with a word because he goes on to say, The Lord God, he awakens me, Christ, the future servant, the servant. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. First we had a tongue that had been discipled. Now we have Jesus saying, I have an ear that was discipled. He awakens me morning by morning. Uh, this, This training went on perpetually. The idea that it's not that one time God trained my tongue and I was ready. It, it was it was a continual process. And he says, the reason I knew what to say with my mouth was because I also had an ear that got trained to listen. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And lest you think that it was sweet nothings that God whispered into Jesus' ear, if you're going to follow Christ, you better be ready for to obey a command even if it's hard. Look Look what Jesus heard God saying. The Lord God opened my ear and I was not disobedient. That means that what the Lord God was saying, God the Father into God the Son's ear was a commandment to be obeyed. I was not disobedient nor did I turn my back but I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be ashamed. Now obviously God is not going to speak into your ear that you need to go on the mission to save the human race from their sin. We will not reconcile the people through the shedding of our blood the way our Savior did, but nevertheless... A trained tongue comes from a trained ear that's ready to be submissive to whatever the Father calls us to do. And so what a a mighty Savior we have. Jesus obeyed the Father's words and came and suffered in the place of sinners. And I just could not resist showing you, and, and we see this played out in the gospel, how perfectly our Savior used his words. To the point that people would say of him, no one ever taught like this man taught. He doesn't teach like the other teachers. He teaches as one having authority because he had marching orders from his father. So we all have lots of room to grow here. Do not be discouraged. It's okay to feel the weight of the sobriety of the Word of God coming and saying, Here's a mirror. You know, we're told the Word of God is a mirror. Look into it. And the only foolish thing you could do now is to see dirt on your face. Oh Lord, I got a long way to go in my communication to see dirt on your face and walk away from the mirror. Instead, no one can look at all these passages about the tongue and not be convicted of sin. So what are we to do? We're to see the dirt on our face and say, Lord, I'm not surprised by that. That's what I've come to expect from me. I'm a sinner. So I'm not shocked to learn from your word that I sin with my tongue. Number one, That's the first thing to do. second thing to do is say, thank you, God that there is a savior to cover the sin of my tongue. And then Lord, help me to renew my mind. We've just stared into the vessel, the tool that God uses to renew the mind so that we can put that off and put that on. And this is not an event, it's a process. So you're gonna put it off and put it on tonight in a fresh way and tomorrow morning, you're gonna get up and do it again. And who knows, you might even sin with your tongue on the way here tomorrow morning. (gasps) Surely not. I've already had to ask my wife. What you never want to do, by the way, as a preacher, is go and teach a marriage conference. Because you just get tested the whole weekend you're doing it. <laughs> Lest you get up here and be struck by lightning by your unconfessed sin. So, so be, be encouraged. We need the Word of God to say, hey, you want some categories for it? So that you're not vaguely repenting. You know, God, vague repentance yields vague results. Specific repentance can begin to re- yield specific fruit in the life. So let's pray. And then my understanding is we're going to take a break until 8.30. And at 8.30, uh, your pastor asked if I would just sit down at the piano and just sing a handful of songs for you. So I selected some uh, two of the songs I wrote for two of my married children. And then uh, I want to close with a special song that I think would be an encouragement to George um, on preaching the word from 2 Timothy 4 and depending on how much time i i may sing a couple of other songs that uh, that just songs about family life that i've written over the years so refreshments to the right correct and then back here at 8:30 okay let's pray father thank you for the gospel which assures us that the sin uh, of our life whether it's in word thought or deed has been paid for by christ But we don't merely take comfort in the thought that our sin has been atoned for. We thank you that on the cross, you didn't just die for the pardon of our sin, but that so we could have power over sin. And so thank you for the promise of 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, their substitution, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's not only pardon in Calvary, but you died on the cross to give us power over sin. And Lord, we pray that you would give us power to harness this tiny member of our body that can cause so much good or so much harm. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.